Baseball is back. You can tell from the sound of the organ, the smell of the fresh cut grass, and this, the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. This week, I'll be talking to The Ringer's Chris Ryan about Gabe Kapler's creative bullpen management with Philly's first weekend of the season, Zach Cram on Angels debutante Shohei Otani, Sean Yu about the Yankees, and Ben Lindbergh on the Astros. As always, we are brought to you by The Ringer Podcast Network, where you can check out Shack House for multiple pods this week from Augusta with Bill Simmons. Also, be sure to go to TheRinger.com to read Zach Cram's Casual Fans Guide to the 2018 Major League Baseball season. And we have merch now. Go to TheRinger.com slash shop to check it out. Now let's start the show. I'm very excited to welcome the first guest of the show, You may know him from The Watch. You may know him from Ringer FC. You may know him from his extensive work on TheRinger.com. A man well-qualified to discuss our topics of today, which is uh, litigating whether or not Villanova is a Philadelphia school and which is the best food truck outside Gladfelter Hall at Temple University. (laughs) Please welcome to the show, Chris Ryan. I think I'm too old to remember food trucks at Temple. I don't think they had them there when I I did my time there. But yeah, I'm excited to be here, Mike. There is nothing but food trucks at Temple when I was there. I think my third year of grad school, I was like 75% uh, foot-long buffalo chicken sandwiches from this one blue and white food truck outside Gladfelter. So shout out to that truck if it's still there. But the real reason that I brought you on is about a week ago, it was a good time to be a Philadelphia sports fan. Villanova was rushing through the, looking completely dominant through the tournament. Fultz was back. The Eagles had just won the Super Bowl. And then Markel Fultz blew up Joel Embiid's face with his shoulder. And then Gabe Kapler happened. And so I put it to you, what do you make of Gabe Kapler? Yeah, so I have to be, in the interest of of full disclosure, I should say that I don't know that I've watched more than 100 baseball games since Ryan Howard tore his Achilles in 2011. But that being said, I was really excited to get into this team, and I was really intrigued by their Galaxy Brain manager. You know, I was really excited to see what kind of new new tactics he was going to bring to the field. And uh, I watched large swaths of this Brave series, most of it in like a total fugue state. And I've come to one of two conclusions. Good. This guy is totally unqualified to manage a baseball team on an almost like criminal level. That's option A. Or B, we are embarking on the baseball managerial version of the process. And Kapler is going to revolutionize baseball one four plus hour game at a time. Yeah, so I I keep flashing back to something our friend Spike Eskin said when the Phillies hired him. Like, this sounds almost exactly like a cross between Chip Kelly and Sam Hinkie. Yeah, and he is that sort of weirdo iconoclast that has played so controversially in Philadelphia sports recently. So there are two strains of criticism of Kapler, and I think both of them sort of get it wrong a little bit wrong. One is the traditionalist. This guy is weird. He's not doing everything the way that it was that it's supposed to be done, that it's been done. And so he's going to fail this, you know, this traditional, I think calling it anti-intellectual gives it gives the people who are being criticized sometimes a little bit too much credit. But like the sort of anti-sabermetric argument that's sort of tired of we've been there and done that. And because Gabe Kapler has written for, uh, you know, has, has come on uh, Baseball Prospectus podcast in the past. He's been sabermetrically inclined that he worked for the Dodgers. There's a reflexive instinct from, you know, people that generally see baseball in a similar way that I do to defend him. You know, saying just because it's different doesn't mean it's going to be bad. And then there's sort of the galaxy brain sabermetric uh, criticism of him that's like, yeah, this guy's trying to reinvent the wheel. What it boils down to is things like the NOLA decision or using all your bullpen arms the way he did. It's confusing large end, you know, things that make sense over over the lar- over the long run, you know, sort of large end conclusions yeah. and applying them to every single situation. Generally, a one inning reliever is going to be better than a starting pitcher the third time through the order. But then you look at what happened opening day and, you know, you look at Aaron Nola, who's 
probably a top 15 pitcher in the National League, almost certainly a top 15 pitcher in the National League, the Phillies' best pitcher, including Jake Arrieta, and the dog shit back half of the Phillies' bullpen. And that wasn't a good decision. He should have gotten away with it. Like, the bullpen hung him out to dry a little bit, Because, but you'd expect any bullpen in baseball to hold a five-run lead with 11 outs to get. Yeah. So he was a little unlucky there. Where I've always been skeptical about him is... The way he talks sounds like I used to work for a software company and he sounds like working at that software company felt. Yeah. Like he gave an interview with uh, Todd's Lucky of MLB.com and he used the phrase iterate our processes and action steps. He's trying to life hack baseball. Yeah. He's like creatine Chris Traeger. Yeah. And there's something that I like even as a numbers guy, I will never completely trust about. Yeah. It's like I think that if he was. The sort of model of a sabermetrics friendly manager who is kind of like, I'm pushing my glasses up on my nose and always consulting my play sheet. I think that most people have actually gotten used to that type of manager. It's the fact that he's the type of guy who's like, I sleep standing up so that I can start my day on my feet. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that is actually going to be more difficult for people to handle. And you brought up Chip Kelly. The thing about Chip was that he was actually pretty elusive when it came to explaining his process as was Sam Hinkie but Gabe seems to really enjoy being like yeah what you got to do is uh you know if you only ever use your left foot you can you can cut down on the amount you turn right and you know it's like that kind of thing is what I think makes people a little bit uneasy and the fact like what you're saying like all his all the ideas behind what he's doing are relatively sound, like you're saying, over the course of a long season. But to throw so much at what is a relatively young roster in a three, the first three games of the season just seems like now he actually has gone from, oh, maybe the Phillies aren't as good as we thought they might be, to are we sure this guy's qualified to do the job he's doing? The only thing that, that really makes me think he's unqualified... You know what? I I don't think he's unqualified. I think you know he's got minor league managerial experience. He was a Dodgers farm director for a long time. He's got a, a better resume than somebody like Aaron Boone, who just walked out of the ball, you know, the the broadcast booth, and or even Alex Cora, who has like one year as a coach. Um, Those guys both warmed up their pitchers, but, though, right <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. The Holby Milner thing on Saturday was just like that's not a mistake that any manager ought to make, and if that's the only. And it's there's a lack of of like if this had happened in July, then it would have been whatever. Like this happened to Ryan Sandberg too, um, or something like it in that Orioles game uh, a few years ago. But if that's the first thing people see about you, you're never going to live that. Like you need to get to the playoffs in order for people to trust you again. In order for the the you know the fan base and the local media, which to a certain extent. It, like that doesn't matter. Like I don't care if the fans trust him so much as it's the players. Like the the whole battle is whether the players trust him. And I, you know, I can't speak to how that trust has been shaken over the past week. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in most video games, you have to warm up your pitcher sometimes. Like to even bring. Like I I I feel I have like I have like a pretty distinct memory of you can't bring this guy in. You haven't been warming him up. There are some some video games where you have to and some where you don't. I know when I play out of the park baseball, I turn that you have to warm up your pitcher <laughs> thing off because it's so annoying to have to deal with. But like bullpen usage, like dealing with warming up pitchers, not only remembering to do it before you need to bring them in, but like managing that warm up workload is one of the biggest in-game differences between video games and and uh, um, and real life baseball. But, uh, you know, that's it's kind of a it's a cheap mode of criticism to to take but it's just it's something it's the bare standard of competence that you'd expect from a big league manager and it's a little troubling that even if he only screwed it up once and he sort of got away with it like that's the only thing that really makes me start to tug my collar um the other stuff is just sort of i don't know that i'd be making such a big deal out of it if it didn't already reinforce it if it didn't reinforce misgivings i already had about him it definitely felt like that the the braves game where Milner came in and he had to he had to warm up basically when he arrived on the mound and the Braves manager was making a big deal about it and the and the ump I think it was Jerry Lane was just kind of like all right like like come on you know like when I, when everybody's it, it felt like watching like a 
an episode of The Office, honestly. <laughs> it's like, why, that was how awkward it was. Yeah, and that's, shouts to Brian Snicker for getting ejected in two out of the first three games of the season. By the way. There's somebody really <laughs> flying under the radar. Got out of this completely unscathed because he was not the most controversial manager of the weekend. But The Office thing speaks to, I think, the real problem. It's not that we're that players aren't ready to take in data and or the media is not ready or that fans aren't ready. You look at the last four managers who managed in the World Series, Joe Madden, Terry Francona, AJ Hinch and Dave Roberts. All four, those might be the the until Kapler came along the four most numerically, you know, front office friendly uh managers in the game and that gets sort of hidden because you know Madden's kind of an orthodox uh tactician but you know, guys like Hinch and Francona have been doing weird stuff with their bullpens or unorthodox stuff with their bullpens. Dave Roberts has been, you know, he's been under fire for pulling Rich Hill from no hitter uh, attempts, you know, stuff like that stuff that managers don't usually do. And they've gotten criticized for it, but they get buy-in from the clubhouse. And that's, you know, I think Joe Madden's corny as shit, but his players seem to like playing for him. And I think that's the whole battle is it's not just thinking that you're more clever than everybody else it's managing to get the players to buy into the unorthodox things you're doing yeah absolutely and i i think that you know at the end of the day that those guys like madden have like a track record they were in the world series so there's there's just going to be a degree of trust i wonder whether or not i i wonder whether or not this is going to become a circus in philly there's you know we'll have the sixers playoffs but pretty soon like this is going to be if it's not already the thing people are talking about on the radio and writing about on 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 blogs like all day long, and I, I it'll be an interesting to see if Kapler can handle that kind of scrutiny without being like you yeah. guys need to really look at you know whether or not there's fluoride in the water, you know, like not that he's a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying, and there's something like very tech bro about him. Not just that he's so self confident, but in the manner in which he's self confident, oh, and yeah. I think there's a possibility that he could get frustrated by just being questioned. That happened with the Pat Neshek stuff already. I feel like that happened with the Pat yeah. ne- where he was just like, yeah, you know, a little bit of a lat thing. And they're like, what are you talking about? You didn't say anything about this. And now he's on the DL. That was a very Sixers moment, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a ceiling to which Philadelphia can freak out about the Phillies. Like if this were happening with the Eagles, it would be Armageddon right now even one game into the or the equivalent of one game into an NFL season. But I think that not just with the Sixers uh, sort of dominating the headlines or Villanova, we're still all sort of in that that post Super Bowl haze. But if this team's going to self-immolate, there is not a more entertaining city for it to self-immolate in in this specific manner. Did you see anything from the the Phillies that that you liked this weekend, this past weekend? I thought Nola was great. Yeah. (laughs) All 59 pitches of him. All the Aaron Nola stuff. Yeah, or 63 pitches. I'm frustrated by the fact that he didn't and this is another sort of traditionalist thing that Gabe Kapler probably you know clearly obviously doesn't care about that might not matter but could matter if the players care I'm a little frustrated that he didn't start Abdul Herrera I think uh, Abdul Herrera is also frustrated by that (laughs) and particularly because he's Abdul Herrera is the Bobby Abreu of this of this set of Phillies where like if the team sucks it's obviously the best player's fault and he you know right now he's the best player on the team either him or nola and he's taken so much crap from the local media and the the front office clearly likes him enough to invest in him long term but this is sort of a strange statement for a manager to make for a player who's who doesn't deserve a lot of the criticism that he gets it just feels like he's not behind him and i could see you know, it's just little stuff like that. That like, does it matter that he didn't start this one game when they're going to run this this rotating door of outfielders? Probably not. But it's a uh, it's one of those things that yeah, it's kind of stupid. But it that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Well, I do like you know Scott Kingery, all in on Scott Kingery. Yeah, me too. No, it's a fun team. I hope we get to see them at their uh, without without being too overmanaged or or too overloaded with power bars and cool life hacks. There's a point at which you're you just get so muscular you can never look truly relaxed. And I think that <laughs> that makes me slightly uneasy. Like that's, that's most right. secure I've I've felt with Philly's managers, Jim Fergosi and Charlie Manuel, both of whom are the anti or were in, in Fergosi's case, the anti Kapler in terms of body type. You know, he's in too good shape for me to trust. 
maybe this is my own baggage that I'm, I'm carrying it. I'm not giving up on him. I just like this sort of reinforces misgivings that I already had. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. One last thing before I let you go. Sure. How is the Eagles Super Bowl change your propensity to panic about other Philadelphia sports teams? Uh, it apparently has not had any impact on my propensity to panic about the Sixers <laughs> because I was I was pretty devastated when I found out that Joel had gotten hurt. And then, you know, I thought maybe it was just a head knock or a concussion or something. And then to have it go from x-rays aren't showing anything, he passed the concussion test to his face caved in and he's going to be out until the playoffs. And there was that moment where it was unsure whether he was going to make the first round. And I think he, that's still up in the air. Uh, I was, I found myself yeah. at just as panicked as I ever was. You know, it just, it, that, that doesn't leave you. That's part of my, that's part of my psychology at this point. It's just always expecting the worst. That used to be part of my psychology. I used to be the most anxious, nervous person I knew. And ever since the Eagles Super Bowl, I've been like that episode of Community where Jeff takes the the anti-anxiety drugs and yeah. like everything just yeah. watches over me completely. If, you know, and Beat will be back when he's back. The bullpen will be what it will and, and everything's going to work out fine. Yeah. OK. Thank, thank you for making me feel better. <laughs> All right. Chris Ryan, we'll let you go back to whatever more important thing you were doing. And uh, we'll talk to you again the next time Gabe Kapler does something bizarre. The next time Gabe Kapler has an outfielder pitching in the second game of the season. Sure. Our next segment was supposed to be a fantasy hype versus concern thing. And then when I was talking to my next guest about it, it just turned into let's just talk about Shohei Otani. So here to talk about Shohei Otani is Zach Cram. Yeah, we were talking about hype and concern and realized you could sort of wrap that up with Otani as pitcher and Otani as hitter, respectively. Uh, After his start on Sunday against the Athletics, I think we are all pretty hyped about how good he'll be as a pitcher, you know, his spring training struggles aside, but he hasn't really allayed those concerns as a hitter yet. And yes, like you said, it's only been a single game, but I think there are some real concerns there. Yeah. So let's start with the the pitcher first, because... This is, I mean, this is the meal ticket, right? This is why he was the most hyped prospect. What it reminded me of, and he was better than this in terms of, of starts, but one of the baseball stories I keep coming back to is Antonio Bastardo when he first came up. He was a starting pitcher, and uh, his first two games were on the road in San Diego and LA, and he had mid to upper 90s heat. He had an incredible slider and no idea where it was going. So Carlos Ruiz just called for... Uh, you know, fastball slider and wherever in the zone, it doesn't matter as long as you get it in the zone and let the defense handle everything because he was just so, uh, you know, so amped he couldn't locate. And this is sort of what it looks like to me because he was missing the slider was I think the the first inning slider to uh, Marcus Semyon was just so far up in the zone compared to where you'd want a breaking pitch to be. But the movement was so incredible that the ace hitters with a couple exceptions just couldn't keep up with it. Yeah, well, first, I'd like to uh, quibble a bit with your comparison of Otani to Antonio Bastardo. That's not really the hype we're looking for. Obviously, he's better than Antonio Bastardo. Relax, okay? But, yes, I, I agree. He threw you know, essentially three pitches the majority of the time on Sunday, and his fastball was you know, really fast. He touched 100. He averaged 98, which is basically you have... Luis Severino and Noah Syndergaard among starters, and then Otani's right behind them in average fastball velocity. But it's also kind of straight. It didn't fool as many batters. So his fastball isn't his best pitch. That would be his splitter, which looked absolutely phenomenal. He got 10 swinging strikes in just 24 pitches, which is you know otherworldly. For the game, he had 18 swinging strikes, which is sort of the best measure of how deceptive a guy is, just how nasty his stuff is. And the only pitchers this season so far with more swing strikes in a game are Max Scherzer and new Astro Garrett Cole. So Tani's splitter looked great. He kept it down. He got a lot of strikeouts with it. But then there was the third pitch, a slider, which is kind of exactly how you described it. Stayed up in the zone. He got kind of hit a little harder on it than he did his other pitches. And it wasn't really tight control. It was sort of just so unpredictable that the A's hitters couldn't manage it. But I think, if anything, that was the most concerning element of the start. But again, when two of your three pitches are as good as his fastball and splitter are, you can sort of get away with those mistakes. 
I don't know if you can flash plus command, but there were elements where he was commanding to both sides of the plate, and there were times when it just got away from him. You know, I think the the command will get better as the season uh, goes on, as he gets more comfortable. One thing that really impressed me about him as a pitcher was his ability to manipulate. He wasn't just throwing one slider, and he wasn't just throwing one splitter. Like a lot of the splitters were were just elevator door, you know, elevator straight down. But there were a couple where you could get that sort of hump at the beginning, that sort of Brandon Webb type movement um, slider. He threw across both planes from that that hard biting horizontal slider to the sort of almost slurvier action uh, that you saw later in the game, um, and then he threw that mid seventies curveball, got Jed Lowry to to roll over on one of those. I mean, that's top shelf fastball velocity. And even like it looks straight, but there were times when he really ran it in, like got a lot of arm side run on, on right-handed batters. I think there's more movement in there than he showed on Sunday. Um, but that's, you know, top notch fastball. That's two above average to plus secondaries, plus, a, you know, a show me, get me over curveball. I mean, he showed, Every pitching cliche, he commanded to both sides of the plate. He changed speeds well, changed eye levels, like everything that you'd want from him as a pitcher. I, I think if that's the the Otani we get, he I think he was better than three runs in six innings because he really only made a couple mistakes. It just so happened he made one of them to Matt Chapman and Chapman hit it out. You know, speaking of pitching cliches, I think the word pitchability can p- kind of be a nebulous term, but the fact that Otani didn't allow a hit the second or third times through the order and to a pretty decent A's lineup, he faced Matt Olson three times, he faced Chris Davis three times, and even though they got multiple looks at him, they weren't any more successful about hitting solid contact. It was really just the bottom of the order the first time that caused him any trouble. And I think that's impressive more than anything. Sometimes you know, you would expect a guy with his kind of stuff, if he doesn't have the ability to change speeds or change direction of the plate, like you said, they'll be able to pick up signals pretty early, but they weren't able to do that. Of course, that was his first game. And as uh, other teams get information on him from video and scouting, that'll be the next step for him. But all in all, I don't think you really could have asked for a better pitching debut from him. So I wouldn't say the same about him as a hitter because, you know, he singled in his first at bat. It was but it was a lot of swinging early in the count and it was a lot of like exit. This is a, a flaw with exit velocity that you can you know, hit the crap out of the ball. But if it's right on the ground to the pole side, then, you know, you're going to hit 200. You're going to wind up with a 200 OBP uh, as Otani did through his first uh, first game. So, you know, it's one game. He's going to get another couple hundred bats probably. But what it reminded me of was something Sam Miller wrote uh, about Otani over the offseason at ESPN. He got the projections, the 20th percentile projection, the 50th percentile projection, the 80th percentile for Otani as both a pitcher and a hitter and ranked them from most to least fun. And just, you know, this first time through, this is, I realize we're being a little hot takey, but if if what we saw the first weekend is indicative of what we get from Otani, I think this is going to be 80th percentile pitcher, 20th percentile hitter. And Sam ranked that as the seventh fun, seventh most fun out of the the nine outcomes that that he gave. You know, that's. I think he can be a star without being anything more than Madison Bumgarner at the plate. And I think there's more there's more than that that he in there, but he didn't show it to us so far. And it, you know, again, it's one game, but you'd like to see him get the ball in the air a little bit more. More so than the results this early. I'm if I I'm concerned, it's about the process where uh, it, you know in Japan, Otani was a power hitter in. 613 plate appearances over the last two seasons in Japan, which is you know essentially the number of plate appearances a regular MLB player will get in a season. He had 30 homers, 34 doubles, and two triples. Those are power numbers. His isolated power, which is essentially a measure of uh, extra base hits, was the same as Edwin Encarnacion and Chris Bryant managed in Major League Baseball. And I don't think any of us are expecting to him to be as good a power hitter as Chris Bryant, who's a perennial MVP candidate at this point. But he exhibited a lot of power in Japan. And even the, the I guess, the sort of pessimistic projections on him as a hitter coming over were that he'd still hit for power, he'd walk, and he's really fast. And in 2018, you can play that guy you know, and bat him at the top of the order. That's a lesser version of like, a, you know, even if he's striking out, Joey Gallo does that. Chris Davis does that. But thus far, even counting spring training, he doesn't have an extra base hit. 
in Japan, this is uh, from the sabermetric site Delta Graphs, he had a ground ball rate below 50% in Japan. It was almost 50%, but in the low to mid 40s. And thus far, combining spring training and opening day, he has hit twice as many ground balls as fly balls. That's a little concerning because you're not going to get extra base hits if you're hitting the ball on the ground. He's already abandoned his like old Bryce Harper leg kick. He's gone to a more muted toe tap, which he had in the last game of spring training and opening day. And that seems to be a way to sort of cut down on the swing and miss on the inside corner of the plate. But if it's also sapping his power, that's not necessarily the best trade-off to make. And he's still getting pounded inside. On opening day, over half the pitches were inside fastballs, which I guess pitchers will just keep throwing until he shows he can beat them by you know, turning on it and ripping a double to the corner. Really, that's all I want to see at this point. I don't care if he goes one for five in the next five games. I just want to see a double to the gap, of a fly ball deep to the warning track, a home run, anything to sort of show the flash that he had just in his first appearance on the mound where he struck out the first batter with a nasty splitter. That's kind of what we all want to see from him at the plate. The troubling thing about this is not that I don't think that that kind of hitter is in there. It's that... I, I think it is an adjustment to American-style pitching as opposed to what he might have seen in Japan, and I worry that if he continues to, I, don't know, I say continues to struggle like he's played more than one game, like it's, but you know, I, with that caveat, I don't know that he's going to continue to get chances every day at bats if he doesn't show something quickly. You know, if he turns into a pinch hitter, then that's still more fun than most pitchers, but it would be a little disappointing uh, compared to the hype. Yeah, I think you're right. He's adjusting to a new style and all he needs is at-bats to figure out that adjustment process. But if he's already not going to bat the day before he pitches or the day after he pitches, and because the Angels are in the American League and don't want to give up the DH, he's not going to bat on the day he pitches, then that's already three out of six games he's not going to hit. Then you take the other three games and he's already sat once against a tough lefty, Sean Manaya in Oakland. So really he's only batted in one game so far. So if you're maxing out his at-bats at half the games, and then you're sitting him against tough lefties, and then maybe he picks up a nick or a bruise here and there and sits even more, that really is putting a cap on the exposure he gets to big league pitching, which is the number one thing he needs at this point. And that's just an unfortunate circumstance of where he is. This is why, you know, I, I'm sure the Angels wouldn't do this because they would never give up the DH, but I don't think hitting him on days that he pitches and then using pinch hitters in the late innings once Otani is out is the worst thing in the world. I'd like to see Mike Sosha experiment that once or twice just to get Otani more plate appearances, but that doesn't seem to be the case thus far. And it, it's a limiting factor. Yeah, it's not how you develop any hitter in an ideal scenario. So thanks, Zach Cram. We'll be back with Sean Yu on the Yankees after this from Mattress Firm. Connecting sports to sleep isn't easy, but here it goes. Mattress Firm is America's neighborhood mattress store, and it should be your goal to check out the deals they have going on every day. Their mattresses are softer than your rival team's defense. They get a 10 out of tennis. You'll love your new bed. Okay, all terrible dad jokes aside, head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and save 15% with the code podcast15. Code is only valid through April 10th, so you need to get on that quickly. Your budget stretches farther at Mattress Firm. Seriously, farther than a gymnast before a floor routine. All right, so we're going to try to hit most of the big markets this week on the podcast. And I'm excited to talk to our next guest because a long time ago, I made a decision to not spend so much time talking to people who are negative influences, which means I've cut most Yankees fans out of my life. But uh, (laughs) unfortunately, we are obliged to cover the Yankees here on the Ringer MLB show. And to that end, I am thrilled to welcome on the commish, Il Commissario in John Sterling's Pigeon Italian, Sean Yu. Bauman, thank you for having me on. I'm glad uh, someone can talk Yankees on this MLB pod. So let's talk Yankees. You you know, your team's made a ton of big moves, none bigger than Giancarlo Stanton. Let's lead off with that. In his first game, hit a in a big shot, a big home run that that got the fans in a bit of a haze of excitement and just all around hype. But he's kind of slowed down from there. And I think that's just the nature of being on a new team and in the same way that players in their opening starts, whether it's like Zlatan or, or Stan recently, will will have a hot start, mainly, I guess, because of adrenaline. But as the season 
progresses on in these opening weeks, uh, he's been slowing down a little bit. And honestly, I, I think the ex- excitement is warranted, but uh, I don't think his uh, his slump is should should make Yankee fans nervous. I think he'll be fine as as the season progresses. No, his. I mean, if you want to look at his full season numbers through four games, he has a two sixty two OPS plus right now. So I think this this can only be uh, described as a win so far. So the other one of the other big acquisitions they made was Aaron Boone, and I just talked to Chris Ryan for about fifteen minutes about Gabe Kapler's first weekend with the Phillies. So I think Aaron Boone, compared to that, like it's the saying about. Uh, the two guys in the bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the other guy. Yep, yep. You know, Aaron Boone is outrun the other bear. But, you know, what are your snap judgments? Because uh, this is a guy with with no, you know, essentially no coaching or managerial right. experience who's been handed the keys, the keys to the biggest job in the sport. So how's he look uh, so far? You know, I think it's uh, it's it's really early to, to uh, make a decision on Boone, but he has been put in two situations in these uh, first few games where it's interesting to see his um, his thought process on on his managerial decisions. Um, on Saturday, Boone brought Dylan Batances back out for a second inning of work um, in the eighth in a 3-3 game, and Batances gave up a pair of runs for a 5-3 loss. And uh, on Sunday, the, the following game, the Yankees were holding a 4-3 lead in the bottom of the eighth, and Boone stayed with David Robertson or he opted with David Robertson's blessing to uh, walk Josh Donaldson to load the bases and go after Justin Smoke, who, uh, uh, as you might know, cranked a game-winning grand slam. And so, although those might have been tough decisions on paper, I, I-, I kind of respect the fact that Boone is putting a lot of trust in his players. Um, granted, Del Batances, I think, is a head case, and we'll see how long he lasts in the bullpen role for the Yankees. But with Robertson, you know, he he went up for a mound visit and asked Robertson, if he was okay with walking um, John, Josh Donaldson to to face smoke and he, Robertson seemed confident. And, you know, I like that early on, putting the trust in the players. He doesn't have much managerial experience, as you mentioned before, but um, I, I like the fact that he's a player manager. As the season progresses, I'm curious to see how he'll handle most in-game situations, especially with the Yankees and, and the way their bullpen is, is managed. But we'll see. It's early. Uh, I, I kind of like him right now. And... Uh, I can't really make a decision. I think he's a good. I think he's a good player manager for now. Yeah, I was skeptical of the hire just because the guy he beat out, uh, Hensley Mullins, a longtime Giants assistant coach, is one of the top assistants uh, in baseball and has a lot of that mm-hmm. managerial uh, experience from his time with the Dutch national team. But one thing that's making Boone's job easier is so far he's used seven relievers through the first four games, and I don't think there's a below average arm in the bunch. He's got the best bullpen in baseball, and that's. You know, as not to keep bringing back Gabe Kapler, but that's something that's very easy to screw up if you don't, if every button that you push doesn't lead to a good relief. Totally. So I think that that makes his job, that makes a rookie manager's job very, very easy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, the Yankees, the Yankees are the peop- the team that chose him. So they're going to rely on him for the whole season. And I, I don't think he has much to worry about. I think Yankee fans will, uh, in, in classic Yankee fashion, be having their highs and lows throughout the season. But I I think as long as Boone stays steady and and brings his team to the playoffs, I I think he'll be fine. This is an interesting situation. Like you think about the Yankees as not being off the top of the pile long enough to become up and coming, but they sort of are like that was sort of a noisy first season from a, a young team just coming together last year. What do you expect in terms of development? I mean, there's not, you know, the only place they can really go is the World Series. Like, is that the expectation? I, I mean, I totally think it is, especially with the way last year was such a surprise and these young players were finally, you know, clicking Judge, Sanchez, and Bird at the at the right moment. But um, barring injuries, I mean, yeah, I think this team has a has a legit shot at the World Series. And if, if they don't, you know, make it to the World Series, I, I think some might see it as a failure. But at the end of the day, this is Boone's first season. The, this whole season's a learning curve for him. And, you know, it's Stanton's first season as well, and you know, Judge's essentially second full season playing. So, there are a lot of uh, potential uh, spaces for the Yankees to fail. But in the end, if all goes right and the players play the way they're supposed to, and Boone just does his job, I, I really think it's World Series or bust for this team. So, you brought up injuries, and I want to thank you for giving me that easy segue. <laughs> uh, they've lost four outfielders plus Greg Bird uh, in 
a bad the span of about a week yeah, right yeah so i mean the, the good news is brett gardner's still in the lineup aaron judge is still in the lineup stanton's still in the lineup so i think that speaks to and to say nothing of this this lineup even when you know even without those guys even without ellsbury clint frazier aaron hicks greg bird this lineup still goes nine deep anyway. So are the Yankees, I mean, I guess that speaks to the Yankees being better situated than most teams to, to withstand injuries to essentially their depth guys, you know, guys like Frazier and Billy McKinney. Yeah. I think uh, one of the big uh, question marks coming into the season was just the immense outfield depth that Brian Cashman had, um, you know, stockpiled in this off season. And, you know, a lot of Yankee hype beasts were curious about, you know, where's Clint Frazier's role in the lineup? And Clint Frazier, who's dealing with a concussion since February, um, you know, Brian Hawk said he's hopefully, you know, close to getting in games and playing in minors. And and so, like, thank God that this outfield depth is so substantial that, you know, guys like Frazier can take his time with a concussion. Ellsbury today, there's a lot of news that he's got a hip thing in quotes, according to Eric Boland, the Yankees beat writer. And um, he's been shut down. So, I mean, Ellsbury, who we've invested a lot of money in, is shut down. And, and Clint Frazier, who's a young prospect, is is on his way up. But at the end of the day, like you mentioned, we still have Gardner, we still have Judge, and we still have Stanton. And there's plenty of depth. More recently, um, you know, Billy McKinney suffered um, uh, a AC joint when he ran into the wall, you know, going to, going to grab a, a, a pop five. But, you know, that, that kind of hurts a little bit of, you know, day-to-day th- things, giving players rest and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just so much depth. You know, Aaron Hicks, who has a rib injury, one of those other outfielders who's hurt, will probably come back once the 10-day DL is up and will give um, Judge us some some relax from the uh, from the center field spot. But, you know, uh, what, a, what a move by Cashman to stockpile these assets in the outfield, knowing that, you know, potentially injuries happen. And we're kind of in a good spot as much as these injuries are, you know, depressing to look about on paper, especially Greg Bird and Adam Warren, some of the other injuries. But, you know, the fact that he stockpiled so many outfielders, I think it's it's really nice and it makes Yankee fans feel a little better. That's uh, something that I think the the sort of casual fan uh, perspective on baseball is still catching up with, that there's so much mixing and matching in baseball and that. You know, injuries are so much part of the game. I mean, injuries have always been right, part of the but, game, but, but more so with that shorter DL. Yeah, you you don't need nine position players plus a couple bench bats plus five starting pitchers. You know, you need redundancies, and I think the Yankees mm-hmm. are, you know, as you said, built well to, to withstand some of those injuries. You know, you got to be able to you got to be able to trust your tenth, eleventh, twelfth guys off the bench. The farm system so deep, also that you know you, we can give guys a chance. There's there's room for that, and. Um, we'll see how Boone manages that situation with the, uh, you know, the the rotisserie of outfielders. But, you know, a lot of people are coming back. The Ellsbury thing is, you know, a big question mark. I don't know what what's going on with that guy. But um, in general, the fact that we still have Gardner, Stanton and Judge healthy in the outfield is is a, is a nice sign. And like you said, it, it it's going to be a, it's going to come down to Boone, see how he works all these moving parts in this in this Yankees rotation. Yeah, we will we will see as the season wears on. Hopefully we'll get some more data on Aaron Boone as a manager and see where the Yankees uh depth, you know, lands them as the season goes on. But until then, thank you for for taking the time to to talk to him about it. Fowman, thank you so much for having me on and I'm looking forward to uh some more Yankee baseball this season. So it is late in the show. It is so late that it's not polite to bunt against the shift, but not so late that it's impolite to shift. So it's that means it's time to bring in the closer, a man who I thought I knew. But then when I suggested we talk about the Houston Astros, all he wanted to talk about was Spencer Torkelson breaking Barry Bonds uh, freshman single season home run record at his Arizona State. I don't know you anymore, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> You're the only person in the world I know who knows Spencer Torkelson, so I figured I'd have to get it out of my system. But yeah, I was just asking you if I'm the closer or the mop-up man, and you told me I'm the closer. But all I know is these last 15 minutes just have a different feeling to them. Not everyone can get the last 15 minutes on a podcast. That's exactly right. And definitely, if we were going to a closer by committee, I certainly would find a better way to to message it uh then you know to tell you outright which is right. we talk a lot about managers on this show uh so far but you know, one manager who i think has proven himself in the crucible of the postseason and and his team as well as aj hench and the houston astros mm-hmm. so we knew about the offense 
They yes. were possibly the best offense ever assembled last year. They brought back all the, you know, all the important uh, component parts. And this year they've got a full season of Garrett Cole. They've got or a full season of Justin Verlander. Uh, and now the rotation looks like it's up to that level. So they yep. they took four out of five between the their series against uh, the Rangers and they came home uh, on Monday against the, the Orioles. So should we pack this in? It's, we've had a week we can we can draw the conclusions about you know we know everything we need need to know about the american league pennant i mean yeah the only thing that's really gone wrong for the astros so far is they had trouble on a windy day unveiling their 2017 championship banner which they may need to figure out by this time next year because they might very well have another banner to unveil by then maybe we can talk about that but you're right we knew the position players and the offense was great and they have been I think as we speak, the Astros position players are actually leading the majors in Fangraph's war, and yet that hasn't even been the story of the team. The story has been that first complete turn through the rotation when everyone except Dallas Keuchel has really held up his end of the bargain, and everyone except Dallas Keuchel is throwing 97 and looking intimidating and great, and maybe the most impressive of all was the new guy, Garrett Cole, who had 21 swinging strikes in his start against Texas, a career high. And it was partly fastballs. There was a lot of talk about, well, will he be more breaking ball centric now that he's with the Astros and away from the Pirates and their fastball first approach? And he still threw a lot of fastballs. He did throw the highest percentage of sliders he's thrown in a start since last April, I believe. But he was getting swings and misses on everything and looking great. And he was the guy they went out and got despite not really needing to do much of anything this offseason because they were so good as it was. And the book on Cole has been, dating back to his days at UCLA, was the stuff, the tools are incredible, and the performance, just for one reason or another, hasn't always been up to it. And with a couple exceptions, that's you know remained true. He's been good as a, a big league pitcher, but he hasn't been the best pitcher in baseball, which is what the assumption was. And you know, it's it's just one start, but like it gets you thinking about if they got UCLA hype Garrett Cole for Colin Moran, Joe Musgrove, and Michael Feliz. That's I mean, that's going to go down as an all timer. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, he was that guy in 2015, his first full season. He was dominant. 2-6 ERA with peripherals to match and more than 200 innings. And then he wasn't really that guy the last couple of years and he missed some time and his just peripherals fell off a bit. And yeah, he didn't look like a top of the rotation guy. And I think because of that 2015 season when he was traded, a lot of people thought, well, the Astros got an ace and that really wasn't reflective of how he had performed the previous two seasons, but it was reflective of his potential. And I think whether they've tweaked him or whether he has just gone back to being the guy he was in that 2015 season, he does look like he has the potential to be as good as anyone in this rotation. And this rotation includes a couple of other former Cy Young Award winners and the Cy Young Award winner of your heart, Lance McCullers. Yes. And... We talked about Keuchel sort of having a rough go against the Astros, but his, or not against the Rangers, rather. Obviously, they arrived here at different points, but his six innings, three earned runs is the exact same line as Shohei Otani that Zach Cram mm-hmm. and I just spent 10 minutes uh, just gushing about. So, it, I mean, even the the downside to to what the Astros have done has, has been, you know, really impressive. I will say that, like, it's easy to get swept up in, like they beat up on a couple teams that, that aren't really expected to be um to be in the mix in the in the playoffs in um the Orioles and the Rangers but at the same time we've seen this team pretty much in its current form just roll through the Red Sox who we'll get to in a second but um and you know put up a, a fight against the the Yankees and the Dodgers and come out on top so you know I don't this really feels like about as good a, a first week as they could have expected. Yeah, definitely. This is not a team that beats up on bad teams and struggles against good teams, I don't think. This is a team that can take on anyone. This is a team that was projected for triple-digit win totals just about everywhere, which is pretty rare. You rarely see projection systems, which tend to be pretty conservative, spit out 101 win projections, especially for a team in a tough league. And yet that's where the Astros were. They just didn't have a whole lot of weaknesses entering the offseason. They brought back almost the entire team that very convincingly won a World Series last year. In some ways, they even upgraded that team. 
their only real weakness that maybe could qualify as a weakness entering the season seemed to be defense. Maybe they weren't a great defensive team, which almost didn't matter because they just hit so well. But even on defense, they've made some headlines, right, with their four-man outfield flex. So Mm -hmm. even in that, they're experimenting with positioning, and hopefully that could make up for any shortfalls they have with actual talent. So I just don't see a reason to bet against them here. And I will say that of seven ringer staffers who contributed to our preseason group post and our our preseason predictions, only Claire McNear and I were brave enough to be boring enough to pick the Astros to win. (laughs) We were bold. We were bold and boring. Everyone else going with these contrarian takes. Give me one reason why you did not pick the Astros. I mean, how could any any team? There are a lot of great teams in baseball this year, but I just don't see the argument for any team not winning other than the fact that it's random and it's the World Series and the postseason and who the heck knows. Yeah, I picked picked the, the Nationals because... Picking the Astros again would be boring, and it's random. It's okay. It's so you admit it. And, you admit yeah. it. No, it's yeah, posturing. I think the Astros are the best team in baseball. I will say though, okay. it's it's worth pointing out that uh, the Boston Red Sox have a, about half the starter ERA of uh, the uh, of the Astros, yeah. almost exactly 0.90 uh, through five games. So mm-hmm. I guess there's there's always a bigger fish, but not. I'm just looking at the Astros schedule, and the only. It's it's so soft in the first couple months. They get mm-hmm. one series against the Yankees opening uh, opening May, and they get the the Indians and the Red Sox, Indians, Yankees, Red Sox all in a row May into June. But apart from that, like the toughest parts of their schedule are away at Minnesota, like away at Arizona, home to to the Angels. Like this is not. Mm-hmm. They could be. I I mean, forty and ten. On Memorial Day? Like, this is not outside the realm of possibility. No, it's not impossible. I kind of doubt that we'll see a Warriors-style challenge of the regular season wins record just because we thought we were seeing that last year with the Dodgers, and they really tailed off. I mean, they went through that rough stretch, but I think even if they hadn't gone through that rough stretch, they just sort of took their feet off the pedal for a while because these teams are kind of too smart, I think, to prioritize setting a regular season record if that leaves you in any worse position for the playoffs. So Mm -hmm. I think all of these teams are always going to start resting guys down the stretch and they're going to take innings off of starters and pull guys earlier and use the expanded roster. And that's kind of a bummer because I want to see a team pursue, you know, 98 Yankees, 01 Mariners and really go for it. But there's no real competitive argument for doing that. Yeah, we'll wrap up with this. I mean, the only real blemish on the apart from their their one loss uh, is the way that Yuli Gurriel is sort of getting you know mm. shaken back into the lineup because it looks like you know, we were. I th- I think you were on the the of the opinion as well that uh, he should yes. have been suspended last year during the World Series. I was. Um, I, you know, I, I think a one game suspension would have served as a, an appropriate and severe punishment and allowed everybody to move on, um, but. Mm. He's served his five game suspension and is not a hundred percent. So it looks like, uh, you know, he's going on the DL, and this is essentially, you know, the suspension has been a a, a DL trip. Um, yeah, which is kind of a, a black eye for the Astros. You know, you, I, I guess if they cared, they would have handled it differently. But mm-hmm. maybe Major League Baseball just wants to put this whole thing behind it, and you know imposing any sort of retroactive punishment would just draw out the story that's re- that they really could have taken care of six months ago. But I guess it's not like the end of the world. It's just a little bit of a shame. Yeah, it doesn't look great this, that this has happened. And I, I think, you know, it depends a little bit on what the Esters knew and when they knew it and how hurt he was and how hurt they thought he was. But in principle, I mean, you know, either way, he's forfeiting the pay, right? So he's still Mm -hmm. getting fined no matter what. And I know there's a line of argument that goes, well, he's the one who did the crime, so he he should serve the time and it shouldn't come back on the Astros because one of their players made this racist gesture. I think that's sort of a specious argument. I think when the player does the crime, the whole team serves the time. That's just how it works. That's part of the punishment and the penalty and part of the disincentive for employing a player who does something like that. But I think the way that they've done this, you're not 
technically able to serve a suspension while you're injured. You can't be on the restricted list and also on the disabled list at the same time. But the way they've done this, it at least gives the appearance of putting him on the restricted list, having him serve that suspension during a time when he was injured anyway and wouldn't have been playing. And so now he'll come back from this DL stint and he'll be ready to go on the first day he's eligible and and actually capable of playing. He'll be in the lineup as opposed to then having to serve the five-day suspension after he's eligible. And this way, presumably, he can have a rehab appearance or something at the end of his DL stint as opposed to having to go five days without playing in between the DL stint and serving the suspension. So it does seem as if they have finessed this in a way. And that's not a great look because, you know, the way this went down and I was with you at the time and felt that it would have been a stronger and better gesture to suspend him at the time and just to make any attempt to circumvent this, given the reason for the suspension, just seems a little sketchy. And really, it's not like the Astros need every single possible game of Yuli Gurriel to make the playoffs this year. So, you know, trying to game the suspension rules in order to get an extra few games of Guriel just doesn't send a great message really. That was a tough last out, but that's why you're the that's why you're the closer because <laughs> I know you can you can handle the the pressure of the Yuli Guriel story. Yes, I'm doing my Aroldis Chapman somersault right now, my save celebration. I've got to come up with a trademark for the end of the podcast. We'll work on that. We'll come back uh next week with that and more Spencer Torkelson talk, but until then, <laughs> thank you for joining me, Ben Lindbergh. My pleasure as always. That'll do it for this episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Hope you enjoy this week's games. We'll be back to discuss them in detail in one week's time. Until then, please, please, please remember to give your relief pitchers ample time to warm up before bringing them into the games. Major League Baseball is cracking down on this. Thanks to Chris and Zach and Sean and Ben for coming on. Thank you for listening to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Got good news for all you Ringer heads out there, where once Ringer merch was just anonymous, open plaid, button-down shirts, and denim jackets, we now have new bespoke apparel that is available for purchase at our shiny new storefront, and you can check it out right now. We have hats, hoodies, and even an exclusive Shea Serrano disrespectful dunk t-shirt. Your friends will be low-key jealous when they see you strutting down the street with an official Ringer zip-up hoodie. Previously available only to Ringer staffers, we are letting you, our loyal listeners, get first dibs on the goods. Go to theringer.com slash shop and pre-order your merch now. These are limited run items and will not last long. And once they are gone, they are gone. You can find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description or go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today.